You are listening to episode 1550 of the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. Without you, this show would not be on the air. If you've been considering signing up to become a Patreon supporter or to make a contribution to the show, do so now. Find out more by going to thepermaculturepodcast.com and clicking on the support tab. For listener supporters at Patreon, your version of this interview contains more than 10 minutes of additional material. My guest for today is Brad Lancaster, author of Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, who returns to talk about Desert Harvesters, an organization in Tucson, Arizona, using neighborhood plantings to collect urban rainwater runoff and create community by raising awareness about native edible plants. We spend much of our conversation discussing the history and actions of this organization before turning to how these ideas are spreading to other cities and towns. During the closing, Brad shares some of the current research on using street runoff to irrigate roadside edible plants, as well as four water assessment strategies that Brad uses to evaluate every site. Before we begin, a quick announcement. Would you like to receive a free copy of the inaugural issue of Regenerative Agriculture Magazine? Now through December 31st, listeners of the podcast can use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout to do just that. Go get your copy today. Now then, on to Brad Lancaster. I'll join you afterwards with some thoughts and the upcoming release schedule. Brad, thank you for joining me again on the podcast to extend the conversation that we began last time about water harvesting and how that can impact living systems. I would like you to begin by sharing with us the story of the Desert Harvesters and the work that you're doing there and see where the conversation leads. So again, I uh, I live in Tucson, Arizona, a dry land community that receives about 11 inches of rain a year. And what we've experienced is the death of our river, the loss of springs and artesian wells, and the loss of our riparian forests as our groundwater table has dropped to the point that uh, the, the living waters and the living forests are now gone. Desert Harvesters was a response to that, a response of how do we um, shift away from contributing to that problem to instead contributing to the immense potential of our place. And since so much of the agriculture of our area, um, as we see in California with its drought, is dependent on dwindling groundwater and the pumping of that water, uh, much of which is fossil aquifer water that is not renewably recharged, or the diversion of water from rivers. And with the extent of that diversion, we're actually killing those rivers. We're depleting the flow to the point that they stop flowing. So this was a reaction against that. And how could we look to and create a different approach? So we wanted to see what could we dry farm. And what I mean by dry farm, what could we irrigate with our free on-site rainwater and stormwater, as opposed to diverted waters from elsewhere? And could we do it in a way that simultaneously helped recharge that groundwater that was otherwise being depleted? And how could it help recharge the dwindling surface flows, rivers and creeks and springs? And uh, to move forward on this, what we did is we looked to, well, what was the inherent potential of our place to begin with? And the amazing thing of the Sonoran Desert is there's over 400 native food-bearing plants. And when we looked to the ethnobotanical record and the history of the cultures of this place, it was very rich. There's over a 4,000-year history of continuous farming in the area. And much of that farming worked with 
the native wild perennial food plants and would irrigate those with simple strategies that planted the rain, that uh, infiltrated the rain when it fell, rather than just letting it run off and leave. So we wanted to mimic that. And it began with a tree planting effort in my neighborhood where we did not plant the typical street trees that were promoted by city programs, but instead promoted the planting of native food-bearing plants. Because we knew these native plants, they don't just survive in our climate, they thrive because they've adapted over millennia to this climate. And we knew that in the urban setting and the suburban setting, they would really thrive because we could double or triple available rainfall. Because so much of the built environment is paved over and the water rapidly drains off those paved surfaces of roofs, roads, and so on. And we knew we could direct that runoff to the unpaved area and thereby increase the available rainfall. So if you have three times the paved area to one time the unpaved area, you can increase rainfall by three times. And it all began with a tree planting effort in the neighborhood where things took off so much. The, the vegetative growth was so great because of you know, well-selected plant species, then receiving this additional runoff along with direct rainfall, that it was amazing and uh, had such verdant growth. And then we had this amazing production of food. But when we started, we didn't know how to process that food. We had read about it because so many of us in Desert Harvesters we're not from here. You know, I grew up here, but my family's not from here. The oral history of my family is not of this place. So we had to look to friends who were of this place, autumn or indigenous elders and friends that could bring to life more of the stories of how you harvest, how you utilize that harvest. And also friends from Spanish and Mexican families uh, and old cowboy families people that lived for many generations and created a deeper relationship. And that's where Desert Harvesters came from. So we had all these mesquite trees, which is like a carob tree, that were producing these edible sweet pods. And uh, you can just chew on them. You can soak the pods in water, heat up the water and create sweet drinks or syrups. But to really, I think, entice the public we needed to grind it into a flower. And Clifford Pablo, an autumn friend of mine, he showed me how he was doing this on the San Javier uh, reservation. It was so tasty, so delicious. And, and then I learned how this mesquite flower, like so many wild foods, it slows the body's intake of sugars. So it's great for people with hypoglycemia and diabetes. The, the potential was amazing. But how to grind it into flour? And he was having to ship the pods he had to a special mill. And that, I just realized, well, that's not convenient. People aren't going to do that. And then a little community on the other side of the Rincon Mountains, an hour and a half drive away, they had found an old hammer mill in a barn. And they started creating this annual event where they said, come bring your mesquite pods, we'll grind them into flour, and we'll have mesquite pancakes and waffles. So even if you don't know what this is like, you can taste it and have the experience that Clifford gave to me. So we're like, yeah, this is great. So I went and checked that out, and it was so fun and so amazing. But I realized that most people in Tucson would not drive an hour and a half to have this experience. So we had to bring it to them. And so Desert Harvesters then came to 
its life when we got a grant to buy a hammer mill to put on a trailer that we could take to different neighborhoods throughout the Tucson area and share that experience that I'd had in Cascabel with the milling of the pods, the mesquite pancakes and waffles, and to share that experience that Clifford had given me of tasting this delicious food, feeling how good it was when my body ingested it, and to know that we could and were growing this just on rainfall along our streets and within our yards. This is what we wanted to take to the community. And you were able to create a social experience around this so that people could come and see it from beginning to end, from those pods to milling to food, and then have a conversation about all of it? Yeah, that was the, the great thing about this event, is we basically gave people the experience at the event, which we had, uh, we started having in our community garden, which was a community garden and a community orchard, incorporating both wild food plants irrigated with passively harvested rainwater and some uh, climate analogs or some exotics like olive trees that could also make it in our climate um, with harvested runoff. And uh, so people could see where these plants were growing. They could see how we were cutting street curbs to direct street runoff into street-side basins to grow these food-bearing street trees. And we could show them right there how to harvest those pods and then to mill them. And then they could taste the finished product. And it all just, it worked so well. But when we started, it was small. You know, we only had three griddles and three pancake flippers and one mill and maybe 24 people showed up. But it really grew fast. So within 10 years, we had people lining around the block waiting in line for the mesquite pancakes. We would serve over 1,500 pancakes in three hours. We had 24 pancake flippers, and we needed three uh, mesquite mills to keep up with the volume of pods people were bringing. It was amazing, too. We even had people flying in from Canada and Mexico to get these mesquite pancakes. And while the carbon skid mark of traveling that far just to eat a pancake should be questioned, the amazing thing was it shows the hunger people have for a food, for an experience that is unique to a place and which does not detract from or deteriorate the health of that place, but rather enhances the health of that place as it enhances the health of the individual, the person eating it, because it's so much more nutritious than a domesticated food. So they're enhancing their health, and they know that by consuming this food, they are contributing to the health of this community that's enhancing its hydrology, enhancing its fertility, and enhancing conditions to the point that it's contributing to what may be the return of the rivers the community killed in the past. Because it's moving from a pattern of extraction of resources to one of reinvestment that can lead to regeneration and the enhancement of multiple living systems. Starting with the neighborhood, how many people were originally involved with Desert Harvesters and how much has it grown since that beginning over a decade ago? It ebbs and flows. So it started as the tree planting effort. Um, we've got an annual tree planting effort in the neighborhood where we always plant the rainwater within rain garden basins before we plant the trees. And then it grew to uh, about 12 people coming together 
to get the grant to get the hammer mill and then put on the event where we had the millings and the pancakes and whatnot. And it, it's gotten to the point that, you know, we need many, many more uh, volunteers and whatnot contributing. But the interesting thing was at our peak, I'd say we had about uh, 60 volunteers, 60 to 80 volunteers at an, at an event. But we found that that model wasn't going far enough in that we found people would look to desert harvesters for this wild foods experience. And they looked to us for the pancakes. And we were getting burnt out. You know, there was just so many pancakes we had to make. And we also realized, you know, this is like a one-day uh, event. How can we make it available to people throughout more of the year? So what we did is we wanted to create a cookbook that created a tool people could take home. And this cookbook, it was also kind of a an owner's manual of how to live in relationship to place. So it showed you how to plant the rain, how to plant the appropriate food-bearing plant species, uh, how to harvest them, and how to process them in your kitchen and share them with friends and family. So in the creation of this cookbook, we wanted to grow community. We wanted to grow the potential. And we just put out the ask to people of, hey, do you have a recipe you like? Could you share that with us? And we got a huge response. And in order to cull through all the recipes, we created these community tasting events, which became another opportunity for people to engage with these wild foods and each other. And so people would come out and sample the foods, the drinks and whatnot, and then they would rate them on their quality and you know how delicious they were. And only the best tasting stuff made it to the next level. And then we gave those recipes to people that had never cooked them before to see if they were replicable. And if they were, and the quality was still great, it made it into the cookbook. But by doing this, these tasting events, people so loved it. Because they're like, wow, I, I only knew pancakes. Now I see I, there's Indian naan bread. There's dog biscuits. There's beer. There's pizza crusts and pie crusts. There's baklava. You know, all this stuff, it was blowing people's mind, minds. And the other thing was it was bridging cultures. It was bridging experience because it was an invitation to fusion where you would have people that maybe were of Russian descent and they were creating these hybrids of their culture with foods unique to this place. So they would take the prickly pear fruit which is uh, deep red, uh, like a beet. And they were using the prickly pear fruit instead of beets to make borscht. So we had this place-based, Russian-inspired prickly pear borscht. The same thing with the mesquite Indian naan bread. And we found at our events, there'd be people who, they weren't comfortable enough with English they would talk to others that were speaking English, but they would bring these amazing foods like the mesquite uh, tamales. And when people would try them, they would watch and they could see on the people's face, you know, just the delight people would experience when they ate this food. And they're looking around like, you know, who made this? And then they would wave and they'd point at themselves, you know, the big smile, like pointing with sign language, like, yeah, you see that? I made that. And then they get the big thumbs up back. And it was just this wonderful sharing through the language of food and a food that was so uniquely rooted to this place. We loved this. And now we did not have to provide the food. So at our next mesquite milling, we set it up into these crazy uh, mesquite bake sales. 
and we just invited people to bring their creations. So now the diversity of participants, the diversity of offerings was so much greater and just amazing. And then we took it further still, where rather than doing it at our neighborhood community garden, we took the main event to uh, one of the local farmer's markets. And we did it in one of the more diverse farmer's markets where there's more strata of income levels and whatnot, more diverse population. And we also shifted our scheduling of our event from November, which is a very pleasant time to be outdoors in Tucson, to June, which is the hottest, driest, most unpleasant time to be outdoors. And the reason we did this is we realized we had organized the event in the past around human comfort, but not around the ecological system that generated these foods. As we learned, we found that there were some aflatoxin issues on mesquite pods that were harvested after the rains in our hot, dry climate. And aflatoxin is a very common toxin that'll get on grains, cereals, and legumes if they are exposed to extreme heat and then they get wet. So we looked more into the traditional practices and realized that the traditional mesquite harvest would be in June, the hottest, driest month before the rains arrived in July. So we shifted our event to that so we would be in sync with the traditional cultural practice and in sync with the ecological systems of our place. Because the highest volume of fruit and seed set is in June because all these plants want to have their seed on the ground when the rains arrive so they'll germinate and regenerate. So we got pushback from the public, but it's been a great success because now we're fully in alignment culturally and ecologically, and people are they're much better getting the, the full picture of what we're trying to educate and communicate. You've taken something that began as a community event to demonstrate a local native plant and its food usage and turned it into a multicultural, multi-tiered approach to using native plants, both for landscape restoration as well as human food. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, it's been amazing. I mean, it feels so good at these community events and it feels so good within these neighborhoods that are now planting out these food-bearing plants and doing so along their streets where the street curbs are being cut to utilize street runoff to freely irrigate the street side trees within street side water harvesting basins. And by using the native food plants as opposed to primarily exotics, um, we're finding the wildlife habitat is amazing. And here's an example. A lot of People plant exotic mesquites in Arizona, um, South American varieties, because they grow faster. But we found from the research of others that the wildlife is in tune to the blooming times and the nutrient counts of the native plant life, much more so than the non-native. So you will get over 60 native insect pollinators on a native mesquite tree, but you'll only get 12 on a South American mesquite tree in Arizona. So by promoting the planting and utilization of the native mesquite, we're really enhancing wildlife habitat and the production of people's gardens as we bring more pollinators into the system and even more migrating neotropical songbirds. 
because we found s- such birds as the Wilson warbler, there it's a small bird. And when they're migrating from Central America across Arizona going north, they have to restock their food stores. So they've adapted to the blooming time of the native mesquite. And they'll fly into a single native mesquite tree and they can increase their body weight by 10 to 20% in just two to four days, just feeding on the insect life in that native mesquite tree. So we're seeing a lot more migratory bird life as well, which has all just been incredible. And uh, we also find that the native mesquites, they have much tastier, higher quality harvests which are more directly connected to the rich cultural history of the Adam, the early uh, Spanish and Mexican settlers, the Yaqui, you know, the cowboy families. So it's tying in again to, in that way, to the cultures and the ecology even more. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't know all this when we started. You know, we just started with a piece. But it's been amazing when, when you start to get in alignment with a natural system of the place where you are. It's like the domino theory starts working in your favor because all these other benefits you didn't anticipate or plan for start happening. And as we become more aware of that and then more consciously try to align with it, even more alignments spontaneously occur, which has just been great. And now we're we're consulting with local businesses that want to take the local food movement further. They want it to be not just local food, but local water. So it's local food grown not with imported water, which would not be local, but local rainwater and stormwater. And they want a wild food component. So we've worked with Exo Roast Company, and they are making cold uh, brewed coffee infused with mesquite syrup and uh, wild perennial chilti beans. So we consulted with them on the mesquite, showing them how to get a better product. Because with mesquite, every tree tastes different. So we showed them how you need to taste before you pick. And Clifford Pablo is the one that taught us. So we're just becoming another communicator of these traditional strategies, but in a modern context. So the quality of their coffee went from bitter because they, in their initial investigatory production, they... uh, we're harvesting from bitter trees to just sweet, delicious ones because now they have the right harvest practices. And we worked with a local brewery on how they could use creosote flowers to create a uh, monsoon desert rain beer that smells like rain because in our climate, when the rain hits the creosote, the creosote lets off this fragrance and that's the smell of rain. We worked with another cafe to with local suppliers of wild foods to have more wild foods um, within their, their menu offerings. They got record sales as a result. And see, this way, now we don't even have to provide the bake sale. Because by working with these local, community, these local businesses, now they are putting these offerings on their menus seasonally or sometimes year-round. So we're really trying to shift the culture to remember the culture of the past and make it work in the modern times. And uh, it, it's just wonderful. So now we're, we're literally trying to work ourselves out of a job where this just gets infused in many aspects of the daily culture of Tucson. So we are not needed. I mean, we're still going. We're still ever trying to evolve ourselves. And part of that evolution is we're going beyond mesquite. So now our next cookbook, we're revising it, expanding it, 
So it's all about mesquite as the gateway food, the bait luring people in. But then we're showing them so many other wild foods that they can plant and grow. And we're not about going into the desert and harvesting. That's an extractive model. We're about growing it where you live, work, and play. And to irrigate it with the waters that are running off your roof, off your street. So you reduce flooding as you decrease the effects of drought. You green your neighborhood. Your neighborhood then generates a new vocation, a new identity. One that's about regeneration of the people within it and the place that supports it. Are you seeing this effort expand beyond the neighborhood where you began and the local businesses to other cities and communities? Yeah, absolutely. What's great is a number of businesses have seen what's happened with the businesses we've partnered with, and uh, a number of new businesses have just taken off on their own. Others have contacted us for consulting and are, are moving forward in that venture. And absolutely, there's more and more neighborhoods doing this, and not just in Tucson. I just did a workshop in Alpine, Texas, where they're creating the Chihuahuan Desert Harvesters. And a month after giving that one, I was in Sacramento, California, working with the folks at Grow Water, where they're creating the river-friendly harvesters, because so many of their wild food plants, if grown within rain gardens, help enhance the health of the Sacramento and American rivers, which are essential for their community. Yeah, it's been great to see how it's been growing and we're always amazed by, yeah, how it's popping up throughout our region and others. Beyond the street cuts and the roadside harvesting of water, I think of the city, you know, we have the heat island effect, and sometimes I hear cities referred to as urban deserts, not only because of access to food, but also because of the climatic differences compared to the surrounding landscape. Yes. What are some additional ways from your experience with the desert harvesters, for people to use that local water, whether they're in the Pacific Northwest, the Northeast, down in Florida, or anywhere else that they might find themselves? Yeah, well, a big thing is we're trying to ensure that water goes to the right spot, not the wrong spot, and that we get the vegetation in the right spot, not the wrong spot. So as we have been promoting the practice of cutting street curbs to direct street runoff into street side basins to grow street trees and food bearing trees. Um, the practice has been growing. And when we got it legalized with the city of Tucson, one of the big problems came up was we realized that previously there had been no conscious planning of where underground utilities would go. And so very often, underground utilities were in the best place to harvest street runoff, which was just on the inside of the street curb, which would also be the best place to plant a street tree where it could shade maximum amount of street and maximum amount of footpath and bike path. So a nonprofit watershed management group got a grant from the EPA and the State Forestry Service to work with the city of Tucson to create a green infrastructure guide and also look at existing policies and practices of the city to see if things could be made more efficient. And so in 2013, a green streets policy was passed by the city of Tucson, thanks to those efforts and also the examples of desert harvesters and others that was proving the concept. And now the city regularly meets with all the utility companies about all the roadway projects going in roadway repair projects, as well as new road projects. 
and they talk about the goal of Green Streets, how they want to bring more life into the public right-of-way, into the commons in the urban core, and to turn stormwater into a beneficial resource, not a flooding waste or problem. So they're now creating these zones, the ideal planting zones are identified early in the project, and they do all they can to keep the utilities out of those zones. And they regularly meet with the utilities to ensure this happens. Sometimes things need to be tweaked a little. So that's been huge. And the other thing is by focusing the harvest of this water where we can shade maximum amount of hardscape, we're doing it where the hardscape is draining its water. So we have more available water to us. But we're also choosing to do this not right against the foundation of buildings where there might be some structural issues, some too much water under the building, but instead drawing it further out of the building, out into the public realm, out into the public right-of-way where it's not a building on the surface, it's just a shallow bit of pavement. So you don't have anywhere near the, the weight or the risk. So this whole endeavor, this push to evolve and to be in better relationship with place has enabled these great conversations with city and county officials to basically step back and ask the question, you know, what's the desired effect here? What are we striving for? We're able to get away from a conversation around a specific strategy, like transportation department might say, well, we want, we want more roads, we want more pavement. We're able to back up and say, well, is that really what we want? Or do we want more efficient movement of people? And maybe that's not necessarily in a car. Maybe that's on foot or in public transport or on bicycle. So this has helped open the conversation for enhanced design of our roads to incorporate more bicycle, pedestrian, public transport, and then to support a canopy of trees that makes that more enjoyable, more comfortable, uh, more enticing. And at the same time, we're also looking at, well, as the streets are so often conveyance systems for our stormwater, shouldn't our streets also, and our streetscapes, also be stormwater management strategies? And couldn't we turn that stormwater, transform it from a, a, a flooding liability into a free irrigation asset? And couldn't we manage that in such a way that we then generated more shade, which reduced the maintenance needs of the streets because the hotter the streets are, the more cracking and potholes you have. And the hotter the streets are, the fewer people are along those streets and the more crime you have. Whereas the cooler, shadier, more beautiful the streets, streets last longer, there's less crime, there's more people out and about looking out for one another, create a more vibrant community. So as we've been trying to push this path of more dynamic living systems, it's been pretty wild to see how that conversation has expanded. From the sound of it, from the social aspects to the governance and policy, the more that you grow and show examples of this, the more holistic the buy-in is from every level of those who are engaged by this work? Absolutely. And you know, this is where I see real power with folks engaged with permaculture, I find it to be a solution-based or a solution-seeking design methodology. And a lot of people that are attracted to it tend to be do-it-yourselfers, DIYers, and DITers, do-it-togethers, as we did with our community tree planting. 
And, you know, when we started with that first tree planting, the first illegal curb cuts, we proved the concept. We showed how these street-side trees irrigated with street runoff could be much more vibrant than those that did not get street runoff, how it reduced downstream flooding, how it shaded and cooled the streets, how it got more people on the street and dropped crime, how we could grow food, how we could bring in more wildlife habitat, how we could bring in more beauty, and how this would transform the reputation and vocation of neighborhoods um, and neighbors themselves. Then we were able to generate the political will that created more of an openness of um, city and county officials to change policy. So I really invite the listeners to where they have a passion or where they have an attraction to experiment with something, to, to go for it. And just start small. You know, so if you screw up, it's not a catastrophe. It's just a learning opportunity. And where you go wrong, just keep pushing to evolve it further, improve upon that. So one thing that we messed up early on when we did the curb cuts is we did the curb cut and brought the basin right up to the edge of the curb. And then people parking on the street, they would step out of their car into the basin and it would be, you know, they'd trip. So we changed that. We created a two-foot wide pedestrian platform that went from the top of the curb inward on the uh, landscape side of the curb. Uh, and then we went to the basin after that two-foot level platform. So this way, people could easily get out of their car and get to the walkway or the sidewalk. So it made it more comfortable, more enticing for everyone. And the transportation department liked it because that pedestrian platform pushed the water two feet further away from the curb. And they were always fearful that water would go under the asphalt and undermine the road, which we haven't found that to happen thus far. And now it's far less likely to happen with that pedestrian platform. So I encourage people to continually tweak and evolve the system so it can work better for them, but it can also work better for other people that maybe don't have the same interest, but are engaging with their creation. So a lot of the people parking on the street didn't initially have an interest in water harvesting of the trees, but they, they loved the pedestrian platform, how it made them easier them to move through it and then as the trees grew and it cooled their parking area well they liked that a lot and then as they saw more of the wildlife they liked that so we've slowly been building the uh, acceptance and support for all this by considering needs beyond that of our own thinking of ourselves but thinking of our community and and beyond that where would you suggest for people to begin storing water particularly in an urban landscape? Would it be in tanks or would you start with the land first? That depends. Every site is unique and it depends on what the unique issues and potentials are of that site. So let's say you've got a real small urban site. You may have too little unpaved area in your landscape to handle all the runoff coming off your roof, which may be much larger than your yard. So in an instant like that, instance like that, you want to use all the eight water harvesting principles, which I have in my books. And one of those is you make sure you always have an overflow. So in the normal rain events, you'll be good. You can infiltrate the water within your landscape and you know, fill your tank. But in the real big rains, when there's too much, you have an overflow point. So all is good. And the overflow water is directed to where it's it's a resource, not a problem. You can also then select appropriate plant species based on your water inputs. And uh, 
you're all in balance that way. And I would say if you're in a drier climate and maybe you have a bigger yard, less catchment area, what do you do in that instance? Well, you're going to plant more drought-tolerant species, but your approach maybe would not just be rainwater harvesting. Maybe you also direct your gray water into the landscape. So in the long dry spells between rains, you still have a water source for those plantings. Look to other on-site water resources like air conditioning condensate. If you have an air conditioning unit, it is draining atmospheric moisture, which is basically distilled water, that condenses around the unit. It's usually being sent to the storm drain. Find where that's happening. Redirect that water into your landscape. So you can come at a water management strategy from three directions. So you can look at uh, a landscape that from your water sources, your water needs, and the water holding capacity. So in a dry climate, I would want to increase the water holding capacity of my landscape by incorporating more organic matter into the soils so it can hold on to that water longer. I might want to invest in a tank that can probably a a true cistern, a large cistern, not just a small rain barrel, so I've got more capacity to hold water when it does rain. I would look to how can I get more water from more areas, not just roof water, but the condensate, maybe gray water, maybe I pull water off the street, and I would look to how can I reduce my need for that water. So make sure I'm not planting species that need more water than I can provide. And in a wet climate, could do the same thing. In a wet climate where I seemingly have too much water, well, I'm going to specifically be planting more water-hungry, more water-tolerant species. I might be purposely trying to increase my need for that water. And I may look at my water inputs and be like, okay, well, instead of directing all my roof runoff in my wet climate small yard to that small yard, maybe instead I only direct a portion of the roof to the small yard. So I have a more easily manageable volume of water. And likewise, I'm going to want to increase the organic matter, the living systems, the roots within my system. So it can not only hold on to the water longer, but it can also more easily infiltrate and percolate the water. So I don't have standing water. You've taken us through many events and impacts that the work that you've been doing through Desert Harvesters and elsewhere have had and shared with us some of the changes that are occurring in different towns and cities across the world. Before we draw this interview to a close, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners? One thing I I need to mention, since we did talk about curb cuts uh, in this interview and using street runoff to irrigate street-side food-bearing trees, is... um, We've done some research and more needs to be done, but uh, heavy metals come off of urban and suburban streets because of wearing brake pads and all. So I do not recommend the planting of annual uh, food plants using street runoff irrigation because leafy greens, tuber crops, they, they can uptake those toxins and you don't want to digest them. So instead, I recommend using street runoff to irrigate woody perennial species. And in the research we've done so far, and more needs to be done, but in the research we've done so far, Mitch Pavo Zuckerman at the University of Arizona did a lot of this research. He found that the heavy metals are not uptaken by the woody perennials into the edible portions of the plant. So that's what I would recommend in that context. And a little assessment 
tool I use when looking at water is I ask myself uh, four things. I look at all my potential water sources, and then when assessing each of those water sources, I ask, what is its availability? What is its accessibility? What is its quality? And what is its quantity? So with rainwater and stormwater, if I don't have a tank, if I'm just doing passive earthworks, its availability is only when it rains and for as long as the soil is able to hold the water. So I need to plant species that are appropriate to that. Whereas if I have an exotic species like a citrus, it needs more water long into the dry season. Rainwater with a passive rain garden is not going to cut it. I'm going to need to dole out water from a tank or a gray water system. And then the accessibility. Maybe that gray water's not accessible because it's within a concrete floor in the middle of the house. So I may want to create an outdoor shower to make it available. And then in terms of the quality, um, I, want, I like to send my roof runoff to my vegetable garden because there's no cars parking on my roof. There's no oil draining off that roof. Cows don't fly. There's no cow taking a crap on my roof. So that roof runoff is really high quality for my leafy greens that I'm going to eat raw. And I send my gray water instead, which might have some crap in it if I crap my pants, which happens, okay? Um, and I say, clean the crap out of my pants in the washing machine and in the shower. That goes to the woody perennials in their root zone. Doesn't come in direct contact with the food, so all's good on that quality issue. And then on the quantity issue, really look at what's happening on your site. On my site, the highest quantity of water I have is coming off the street. So I have the bulk of my perennial food production with predominantly wild food plants right along the street. And I'm using predominantly natives because they are adapted to the availability of that water. And I only have a few climate-appropriate exotics like uh, an olive tree. I can't do a citrus tree. It, it needs too much water. So it doesn't meet the availability assessment of that particular water. And then I have my exotic fruit trees that need regular water. They meet the quantity and the accessibility availability issue by putting them at all my gray water outlets. Because as long as I'm home, that's perennial water flow and uh, going right to their root systems. So if that helps for people, I find it very helpful. I go onto a site, assess all the potential water sources, and then create a little graph of what's their availability their accessibility, their quality, and their quantity, and then that informs how I move forward with the management of those different waters. And for everybody who wants a reference, that's available in your books? Yes. So my books, Rainwater Harvesting for Dry Lands and Beyond, are great resources. I can't recommend them enough. My website's also full of great information as well, harvestingrainwater.com. Lots of videos, image galleries, and info. And I've recently put up a new page on the website, which is Street Runoff Harvesting, which goes into detail on do-it-yourself curb cuts, how you work with contractors, and key elevation relationships when you create these systems and special low-maintenance eddy backwater basins and so on. And I also created a new gray water page of my website, which goes into gray water harvesting stub outs and uh, new innovative systems that expand upon the information in my books. And then you also mentioned the cookbook that you put together. Was that ever uh, published formally for people to get, or was that just something the community created for the events? 
Yes, thanks so much for asking about that, Scott. So we did come out with a book. It's called Eat Mesquite, a cookbook. It was a great success. We sold out, and it's now out of print because we're now putting our energy into revising and expanding the book as Desert Harvester's mission has evolved. So the next one um, will likely be called Eat Mesquite and More. So it'll have all the original and more new uh, mesquite recipes, but it'll have the recipes of many additional wild food plants of our area. Because again, the mesquite was meant as bait to lure people in, and now we want to show them the bigger picture, the bigger potential of all these other diverse, delicious wild food plants that they can freely irrigate on passively harvested rainwater alone that can you know, regenerate their health and that of their community. Uh, and we hope to have that out by this time in 2016. We might go faster, but we'll definitely have it out by the holidays of 2016. Well, thank you for all of that, Brad, and our conversation today. I really appreciate that you would take the time to join me again. Well, I super appreciate the opportunity, Scott. I think you are a key force out there, ensuring more cross-pollinization of great ideas and the evolution of ideas and practices. And so thank you so much for that. And that was Brad Lancaster. Find out more about him at harvestingrainwater.com. The Desert Harvesters website, desertharvesters.org, has numerous resources that expand on the conversation Brad and I had today. One piece that I recommend you read is the Manifesto, as it is a one-page poetic encapsulation of everything the Desert Harvesters stand for, including their vision and approach to spreading knowledge about native plants and the power of celebration and capturing water runoff. Through the use of celebration, the Desert Harvesters created community that leads to a greater buy-in from the changemakers in not only Tucson, but other regions as well. Though actions that started out illegally with those first curb cuts, Brad and the others in his neighborhood show that these ideas are using street runoff in a way that's functional. And how to eat native plants. Leveraging those two ideas shaped through the creation of the cookbook expanded the circle of influence further and further, accomplishing more collectively than through the actions of a given individual or organization. Could you use these ideas as a model in your own community to enact change? If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments on this or anything else you heard during the episode, leave a comment in the show notes, and we can continue the conversation. If you'd prefer to have a discussion in private, you can also reach me by email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or phone, 717-827-6266. From here, the next episode out in a day or two is a short interview with Ethan Hughes to discuss what to expect from The Possibility Handbook. On Monday, December 7th, a Permabyte interview with David Casey, who recently launched the site Numundo, to talk about how to take an idea and turn it into reality. On Thursday, December 10th, Jeremy Zimmerman comes on to share how to make mead like a Viking. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.